In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organically. Alright folks, you're just listening to Three Teeth, the industrial metal band out of Los Angeles, California. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are currently listening to Meditations and Molotovs on the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us here every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. for you folks on the West Coast. Well, this is our first broadcast since the orange rapist, lunatic, whatever you want to call him, took office. And, you know, we won't spend much time on that because on today's program we're going to be playing an interview I recently conducted with Charles Glass about his book, uh, Syria Burning, A Short History of a Catastrophe. Or Syria Burning, ISIS, and the Death of the Arab Spring. That's who we'll have on the program here in about 10 minutes. Until then, you know, I wanted to say it was great to see all the folks in the streets over the weekend. Lots to talk about with regard to Trump, his incoming administration, what activists should prepare for, what people have already been preparing for, how we can build off of existing movements. You know, a lot of people have called and people are asking interesting questions. You know, what should we do? How should we organize? What should we focus on? I received a phone call from an activist and organizer who I tremendously respect last evening. Didn't get to talk to him at all. He just left me a voicemail. I got to get back to him after the program here today. But, you know, essentially the the main question was, what should we expect if we organize within the Democratic Party? And is that the best way for people to spend their time? And, you know, it depends where you're located. It depends what you're interested in doing and accomplishing. For instance, if your number one concern is to enact a single-payer health care program, and let's say your politics are limited to the sort of reforms that Bernie Sanders was talking about, maybe, and I think maybe you could achieve those reforms within the Democratic Party. I don't think any of Bernie's reforms, even though the corporate media and oh, the rich and the elites within American society oppose those policies, uh, I don't think any of those policies represent a genuine threat to the system. As such, they might represent a threat to the level of power people have within the current system. But his policies are policies like those espoused by someone such as Elizabeth Warren pose no real threat to the system. Hence, I think you will be able to enact those reforms within the current governmental state and non-state structures that exist. I think that's a possibility. It's not a guarantee, but it is a possibility. But history is also against you on this. 
So if you are one of those activists out there who is saying to themselves, you know what, and I, I listen to a lot of speeches, not only live, but then I've been looking, you know, looking on the internet, checking out YouTube videos, looking at some of the speeches that were given around the country, and there was a lot of talk of taking over the Democratic Party. And again, folks, for me, this is much less ideological than it is pragmatic uh, sort of critique. What there's a long history of people trying to take over the Democratic Party, and yet the Democratic Party, in many ways, continues to shift further and further to the right, at least on the issues that matter the most, like the environment, the military, and economic policy. Without question, the party has shifted further and further to the right as the decades have gone on. Now, of course, socially, or as Bill Fletcher refers to these issues as social justice issues, gay rights, medical marijuana, individual racism, cultural racism, uh, systemic racism being addressed, but hardly effectively. If, again, the prison population continues to explode, if black and brown people are shot by police at a disproportionate number and those numbers continue to rise year in and year out, it's very hard to make the argument that we are winning the battle against systemic racism, individual racism, cultural racism. Can you run around, can angry racist white people run around calling people uh, bigoted names and so forth or discriminating against people on an individual or even sort of a quasi-collective level? Yeah, that's sure, um, but not as much as used to be. So there has been progress on that front. But challenging the systems and the institutions changing the laws, changing the actual structures of how society operates, legal systems, policing apparatuses, that's where the real conversation is, that's where the real debate is, and that's where the real changes will be made. In the meantime, people can do what they can, but this is, obviously we don't have the whole hour, but my interview with Charles will take up most of the hour, but these are some of the questions that came out of those protests. These are some of the questions that the activists who participated in those protests will be struggling with and addressing as the years go on uh, within Trump's presidency or under Trump's presidency. And again, the biggest piece of advice that I could sort of tell people or give to people would be to not make this so much about Trump, even though it's easy and it must be done, of course, but to make sure we focus our energies and critiques, especially the more substantial ones, on the way the system operates regardless of who is in power. So I actually think it does us more harm than good to focus solely on Trump or even Pence or even the Republican Party. And in the short term, again, that might be an effective goal at delegitimizing Trump's presidency and stopping some of his policies, sure. But that's a very short-sighted and very short-term goal. We've been here before, folks. So people who think this is new, and in some ways it's new. I mean, there's, there's elements of Trump and Trump's personality and his candidacy that are somewhat new. But in terms of where movements have been before and presidencies that movements have addressed before, we have been here before. So people who think that these, we're, we are on the, in the dawn of a new age and, my God, you saw all the people in the street. We've been here before under Bush. We've been here before under Reagan. We've 
been here before under Nixon, and we can go on down the list, specifically since the Nixon era. There are millions and millions, and there were millions and millions of people in the streets, sure, but that power was never codified within the most powerful institutions of our society. Hence, the right continued to maintain institutional power while the left became more and more fragmented and disempowered. This is a conversation we will take up next week. I want to interview community organizer and activist Olga Batista from my old neighborhood, the 10th Ward, southeast side of Chicago. We'll be speaking with her next week about some of these issues. And I think I'm going to devote the next couple months to awesome, kick-ass female activists who I know. And it runs right in line with the Women's March. And we can talk about all of these issues and more as the weeks go on. Next week, Olga Batista, community organizer and activist from the southeast side of Chicago. Right now, uh, we are going to play the interview that I recently conducted with Charles Glass about his book, Syria Burning, ISIS and the Death of the Arab Spring. Charles Glass is a broadcaster, journalist, and writer who began his journalistic career in 1973 at the ABC News Beirut Bureau with Peter Jennings. He covered the October Arab-Israeli War on the Egyptian and Syrian fronts. He also covered civil war in Lebanon, where artillery fire wounded him in 1976. He was ABC News chief Middle East correspondent from 1983 to 1993. Since 1993, Charles has been a freelance writer in Paris, Tuscany, Venice, and London, regularly covering the Middle East, the Balkans, Southeast Asia, and the Mediterranean region. He has also published books, short stories, essays, and articles in the United States and Europe. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with writer and journalist, Charles Glass. All right, Mr. Glass, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your personal history and where you grew up? I'm from Los Angeles, and I went to the University of Southern California. Uh, when I left USC, I went to the American University of Beirut to do a master's in philosophy. That was in the early 1970s. While I was in Beirut, I met a number of American and British journalists um, who would give me a bit of work to do for them. And by the, by the autumn of 1973, when the October War began, um, I was taken on by ABC, where I did a, some producing, and then I became a sound man and then a radio correspondent, and um, ended up not continuing in philosophy, but, but going on in journalism. Well, obviously, the early 70s were a very interesting time politically around the world. How did those politics affect? So you're, I'm trying to get the timeline here, early 70s, you're going to school, uh, late 60s, you're in high school. How did the politics of that sort of 68 generation influence what you were interested in at that time? And did you, were you yourself involved with any of the political movements? Well, I was a very conservative uh, undergraduate. I was a Goldwater Republican. I... Uh in fact, even in, in grade school, I campaigned for Barry Goldwater. Um, I, I left the United States as a fairly convinced right-winger. But living in Lebanon uh, from 1972 on and witnessing the Israeli bombardment of Palestinian refugee camps and seeing uh, American foreign policy on the ground, uh, my politics changed completely, and I uh, became very anti-imperial and much more critical of American foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East, and then 
because of my understanding in the Middle East, it, uh, it spread to my understanding of American foreign policy in Latin America and Southeast Asia and elsewhere. And I went, for example, many years later to East Timor, uh, where the United States had helped the Indonesians to invade and occupy East Timor and massacre over a third of the population. A very shameful episode in American and Indonesian history. Um, but it, it fit with my growing understanding of the harm the United States was doing around the world. And did that that understanding at the time, it sounds it actually sounds a lot very similar to my own experiences in terms of coming home from the war in Iraq, going to the war in Iraq as a Marine, as an 18 year old, I was deployed there twice, once during the initial invasion in 03, uh, and then ended up in Najaf and then in 04 and 05 and ended up in Al-Qaim on the Syrian border, uh, just north of the Euphrates, or I'm sorry, just south of the Euphrates and about five miles east of the Syrian border. And before that time, I grew up in the Midwest. My family's from the southeast side of Chicago. We moved to a sort of deindustrialized Rust Belt area here in northwest Indiana in a town called Michigan City. And I didn't really have many politics or any kind of politics before I went. Uh, the only thing I understood was that unions were good because my dad was a union iron worker. Uh, other than that, my experiences in Iraq colored what I understood about the U.S. and U.S. foreign policy after that. Now, because of that, I think, you know, going into some kind of a professional career, it can also be sort of hinder folks. You know, when they come to those realizations, it often is in opposition to, say, what, you know, major newspapers or other uh, entities, particularly in the post-Iraq era, I would say, uh, what they're looking for, what kind of information, what kind of reporting, and then, say, the more critical reporting that you're providing. So because of those experiences... Have you found it difficult to, I mean, I, I know you've been quite a successful journalist, quite a successful writer. Um, it, it, has it been difficult to find the professional space to operate in within, while having those kind of critical politics? Yes and no. Uh, certainly for my book publishing, there's been no problem at all. Uh, book publishers are extremely open-minded, and even those who disagree with me have been happy to publish my books because they think that I, I, they must think I have an interesting point of view and also the books sell. Um, for television and uh, broadcast journalism, I was able to work at ABC News for many years and on many issues, uh, ABC backed me up. Uh, I was particularly fortunate that the ABC News anchorman, Peter Jennings, had originally hired me in Beirut and had also lived in Beirut many years himself and understood the Middle East very well. And uh, our opinions on what was happening, particularly to the Palestinians, were pretty much aligned. And so when I would report on what Israel was doing in Lebanon, uh, Peter would back me up and the network would, would back me up in the face of often very virulent uh, criticism from the Israeli embassy. Um, there were occasions, however, when some of the stories that I did never made it to the air, and no one at ABC would ever say, we're not putting that on the air because it's too critical of Israel. They would just say, we don't really have space for it tonight or tomorrow night, and, and then the time would go and the, the, the story would be out of date. I'll give you one illustrative example. Um, in the, I think it was in 1983-1984, the Israeli army and Shin Beth were running death squads in South Lebanon to kill people that they suspected of opposing them. 
and uh, my my crew and I spent a lot of time down in South Lebanon documenting the ways in which the Israelis fingered people and went to their houses and uh, uh, blew their brains out. Uh, and it was a, it was a very important story. I was able to write it in the Spectator in London, but ABC just never ran it, and they would never say they didn't run it because it was a bit um, questionable. They just just didn't didn't let it run. We we often had arguments on issues like that, but on the whole, um, I have to say ABC was very supportive, and uh, and I'm grateful to them for giving me access to the millions of viewers that they had at that time. Well, I was recently watching an interview you did with Tariq Ali where you mentioned that since the war in Iraq and this sort of embedded journalism, that things have become much more difficult for that sort of critical reporting. What do you what do you think that change is attributed to? And, and can you talk about that difference and the kind of reporting that came out of Iraq? Well, a lot of it, I don't know how different it is. You have to remember that during the Vietnam War, almost the entire press was pro-war. Uh, you, see, you saw very, very little critical reporting. The press in these days likes to pat itself on the back and say they exposed all the truths of Vietnam. But in fact, uh, for years, they went along with government propaganda about what the U.S. was doing there. And it was... Um, there are, all, there, are, there are several individuals that you can name almost on one hand, Cy Hirsch, Sidney Schamberg, and a few others, who, who, or Kevin Buckley at Newsweek, who fought very hard to expose many of the murders and, and the policies of assassination that were going on in Vietnam during the American occupation there. Um, and so I don't think that there's been such a change since uh, between Vietnam and, say, Iraq. It's just that uh, the presentation that the press itself likes to give of its of its role in Vietnam would lead you to believe that there's been a big change, when in fact the, probably the change hasn't been that great. And the, the reporting on Vietnam finally became more critical when it was clear that the U.S. was losing. And similarly in Iraq, um, the cheerleaders for the war in Iraq, and there were many in the press, um, had to change their minds when, when Iraq was became so manifestly a disaster for both the Iraqis and the United States. Right, right. And now how do you think those experiences have colored your understanding of today's foreign policy? You look at what's happening. I just, before I called you, was, my ears were ringing listening to Rex Tillerson's, uh, oh God, they're interviewing Rex Tillerson, the Exxon, former Exxon CEO who's going to be the head of the State Department. I'm listening to this press conference with Trump prior to calling you, and I'm I'm thinking about how someone such as yourself, you've been through many different administrations, you've been through different politics, both in the countries that you're reporting from, also the United States and the West, uh, different regimes and administrations and so on. Going forward, what do you think is the most important thing for journalists to keep in mind as they report on the Middle East and so on moving forward? Well, Otto von Bismarck, the chancellor, the first chancellor of modern Germany, said, "Never believe anything until it's officially denied." <laughs> He's, he, the point is valid. You have to assume government officials are lying, and what you just have to find out the ways in which they're lying. If you dig deep enough, you will find out. Um, it's interesting that Rex Tillerson is going to be the foreign uh, the. the uh, Secretary of State, um, because the oil companies, including his, um, are responsible for making foreign policy in the Middle East for the United States, going back to the end of the Second World War, and putting 
an actual oil man into the State Department is simply stating, uh, making obvious something that, that's been there all along. Uh, the United States staged its first military coup in Syria in 1949, overthrowing a democratically elected government in order to put in a strong man who would sign off on an oil pipeline, an American oil pipeline, from Saudi Arabia through Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon to the Mediterranean. And uh, I expect that that, policy, that kind of policy will continue, particularly if it's being directly uh, controlled by the head of one of the world's largest oil companies. And I definitely want to get to that that period of, of Syrian history and in that portion of the book where you mention it. So moving on to the book, in your book, Syria Burning, you mentioned that, and I'm going to try and do this and sort of pick pieces out of the book and, and, and question you in a chronological order. For people who might not be familiar with the history, people who haven't read the book and who might not read the book, who might only hear this interview, and then I plan on transcribing the interview as well so I could send it to you before I put it out to whatever publication I send it off to. But to give people a sense of what we're talking about here, in your book, Syria Burning, you mentioned that Aleppo is 8,000 years old and also one of the most important cities in the history of Islam, a quote-unquote cosmopolitan metropolis, unquote. Uh, you mentioned that Syria has historically referred, has been historically referred to as the beating heart of Arabism. So can you talk about this history and the important place that Syria finds itself within it? Well, Syria was, for 400 years, a province of the Ottoman Empire, ruled by the Turks from Constantinople. As when the empire was demolished by the British and the French in 1918, uh, that area was up for grabs. And the British and the French, who had promised the Arabs that they would be given their independence, because the Arabs supported the British um, campaign in in Syria. Um, there's a famous film called Lawrence of Arabia, which tells that story. The, um, the two countries decided that they would not give the Arabs their independence as promised, and they, they carved Syria into several provinces, Lebanon, a smaller Syria, Transjordan that became Jordan, and Palestine that became Israel. Um, and since the, the area was divided like that, it's never really come back together. And it's been the scene of unremitting conflict ever since uh, for a variety of reasons, but primarily because of the foreign domination and the, the borders, which were never workable. And can you talk about this foreign domination? Because in the, what I found very interesting was that you mentioned in the post-World War period and the breakup of the Ottoman Empire that the not only did the Western colonial powers play a significant role in what followed the Ottoman Empire. But you mentioned some of the sort of contradictions and nuances within that. I think if I'm remembering correctly, I don't have this specifically in my notes, but I think you mentioned in the book that under the Ottoman Empire, there were services and, say, basic essential uh, services that were provided, but that there was little social and political freedom, and that there were Arab nationalists who worked with the British and French to get rid of the empire. I find all of this interesting, of course, because there's great parallels to a lot of the conflicts today, including the war in Syria, forces looking for outside support, seeking it, uh, say, in the form of Russian bombs or could be American bombs, etc. Um, can you talk about those parallels from then and today? Because well, I in, also... In, in 1917, when the British encouraged the Arabs to rise up against uh, the Ottomans, they promised them independence and freedom um, 
they didn't deliver their promises and they were the Arabs were deceived and betrayed. However, um, they don't seem to have learned their lesson. They still keep turning to foreign powers which have repeatedly betrayed them for external support, which in the end has never had the effect of increasing their independence or, or their freedom or indeed their standard of living. Uh, it's always had the effect of making things worse and leading to, to more conflicts. And the United States has made a lot of money pouring weapons into the area, weapons which are now being used uh, or have been used for the last 50 years for Arabs to kill other Arabs or for um, Israelis to kill Arabs. And uh, that's, that's not changing. The, um, it's what, what is astounding is the degree to which various factions in Syria or indeed in Iraq still trusted people who have consistently betrayed them. I mean, look at the Kurds. The Kurds were betrayed by the United States in 1975 very badly and very brutally. Um, before 1975, the United States was um, arming and uh, providing logistical support for and training Kurdish guerrillas to fight against the government in Baghdad. Right. When the United States got what it wanted, which was a, a, a deal, a border deal for the Shah of Iran, who was the American puppet at the time, um, they allowed the, they told the Shah that uh, the, the game was over and no, there would be no more help for the Kurds. They cut the Kurds off and stood by blind, I mean, blindly, while uh, Saddam Hussein massacred the Kurds. And, they, and the ones who survived had to flee to the mountains or fled to the to Iran for, for safety. And despite that, the Kurds have gone on again and again, uh, trust the United States to help them out. In, in 1991, George Bush Sr. called on the Kurds to rise up and overthrow the dictator, which they did. Mm. But when they were on the verge of victory, um, the Bush administration told Saddam that he could use his helicopters and the helicopter gunships came. And I was in Iraq at the time. I was, I was with the Kurds. We saw the helicopters dropping barrel bombs on the Kurdish villages, and the Kurds who had been gassed once by Saddam were afraid that those bombs contained poison gases, and they all fled again. And yet, after 91, they put their trust back in the United States, and to this day, they're putting their trust in the United States. I don't know that it's going to pay off for them, but that's the way, that's the way they are. And do you think this is a lack of options, Charles? I think it's a lack of option and also a lack of seeking accommodation with your internal enemies to, f to find a modus vivendi that doesn't require you to um, turn to foreign powers. I mean, throughout the history of the Ottoman Empire, um, the communities inside the empire always looked to outsiders for for help. Uh, the Christians looked to France, for example, uh, the, or the, uh, the Catholic Christians looked to France. The Orthodox Christians looked to Russia because it, Russia was an, uh, uh, the seat of, of Christian Orthodoxy. This is before the Russian Revolution. And uh, the Sunnis looked to the Turks because the Turks, Turks were fellow Sunnis. The Kurds had no one to look to because they just couldn't find an outside benefactor. They occasionally got a little help from the British, but by and large, this tradition of looking to outsiders to help you solve your problems uh, has has gone on into the 21st century, although it's been counterproductive regularly. Now, I would like to go back to the great Syrian revolt of 1925 and kind of bring us up to the period of Syrian independence. Can you talk about this great Syrian revolt and some of the similarities that you mentioned within the book uh, to the revolt that started in 2011? 
Well, the French uh, were awarded a mandate to govern Syria and Lebanon by the League of Nations at the end of the First World War. Um, just before that, the United States, uh, President Wilson had sent a delegation around Syria and Iraq to sample public opinion, find out what people actually wanted. And they heard petitions from thousands of people and they held public meetings throughout the region. And they concluded that the people of Syria wanted two things most of all, one, independence, and two, unity. Um, in the end, the League of Nations did not give them their independence and it did not allow them allow Syria to remain united. Iraq, which wanted to divide between Kurds and Arabs because a, a union of them was not going to work. Um, the people there wanted uh, this division, but they were forced into a unity that, that didn't work either. Um, so the French kicked out King Faisal of Damascus um, in 1920 and took over. And almost immediately, uh, various Syrian factions started rising up against the, the French to try to expel them. And these, these rebellions always failed. In 1925, though, there was a huge rebellion initially begun by the Druze community in southern Syria. Um, who drove the French out of their area and got, garnered a lot of support from the Sunnis throughout the, the country. And they, they managed to take over large sections of the country, but the French wore them down and uh, sent reinforcements and better weapons, and they had air, and the Arabs didn't have air. And finally, after s several years, uh, crushed the rebellion, um, and during, during the course of which they killed thousands of people and destroyed a very large part of Damascus uh, and hanged, hanged people publicly to try to discourage the others from rising up. There was a similar rebellion against the British in Iraq in 1921, and there was a, there was a similar uh, one in Palestine against the British by the Arabs between 1936 and 1939. So the, the British and French governance of those countries was never accepted by the local populations. And the, the, the 25 rebellion um, was a case in point where the Arabs turned to the Saudis and others who in, in the event betrayed them. And bringing us up to the period of 1946 in Syrian independence, you had referred earlier to the Aramco interests that set off a period of severe instability after a period of relative stability. The, the first coup in 1949 led to coups almost every year uh, between 1949 and, uh, and 1970, when, when the last coup took place. Um, it was a period, a period of great instability for the country, and, and it was very hard to do any planning. But many of the coups were not very bloody, but they were. it, it meant that they were created a state of unease in which trust broke down in which a security apparatus was put up to try and prevent future coups. And when Hafez al-Assad, uh, who was from the minority Alawi community and who had, was an Air Force general and had been Secretary of Defense, staged the last coup in 1970, he put in place a security apparatus which was very thorough, originally trained by East Germany. Um, and uh, it was so solid that we see his son took over when he died, and um, the rebellion of the last five years, although the, although the rebels were very well financed and armed by the United States, Britain, France, the, the security system that Hafez al-Assad put in place was so effective that um, his son, who took over when he died in 2000, um, has been able to resist uh, for the last five, well, almost six years now. 
the uh, rebel onslaught that um, was backed by the United States, Britain, France, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. And, um, and the regime is showing, although the country has been destroyed, the regime is, is showing every sign of, of surviving. What was the connection in 1970 for Hafez al-Assad's security state in East Germany? The East Germans came in to train his security personnel, in, particularly in interrogation techniques. Okay. And uh, the, as, as you may know from reading, if you've ever read the history of the, the Stasi in East, East Germany, um, they, they really put us, they, they taught, they could teach people very well how to watch other people. Right. Right. So in this same chapter, you also mentioned the failed revolutions in Lebanon, 1975, Palestine and Iran in 1979. Can you talk to the listeners about why you mentioned those three failed revolutions as you uh, refer well, no, to the, them? The, 79, the revolution in 79 in Iran was successful. It overthrew the Shah, but it, it put in place a theocracy. Uh, so it was, it was so failed from the perspective of progressive uh, politics and values and so on. I'm, I should have been... Well, many, many people on the left in Iran in 1979 worked with the Islamists, but when the Islamists took over, they purged them immediately. I mean, they, they decimated the two-day Communist Party, and, and any, anyone else who was a liberal Democrat was, uh, was put in prison. The, uh, the effect for the left in Iran was, was absolutely devastating. Didn't, it didn't pan out for them, but there was an Islamic revolution, which is not what those people wanted. And the, the, the revolution in Lebanon, which was a Palestinian revolution, which sought to turn Lebanon into a state of confrontation with Israel, but also to have greater equality in Lebanon and a lot of the socialist principles that the Palestinians at that time espoused, that failed in large part because the Syrian army came in in 1976 and helped to crush it. So you traveled to Syria in 1987, and at that time, I think you note in the book that there was sort of a silent opposition to Assad's regime, and that the Ba'athist party was showing some cracks at that time. What brought you to Syria uh, during that period? You know, and how, I mean, well, obviously I, I, your, I your observations were quite I, pressing. I, I had first gone to Syria in, 19, in 1973 at Easter on my, right. my way uh, Throughout, I was, I was hitchhiking throughout the region. I just wanted to see various places I hadn't seen before. And uh, I went to Damascus then. I went back to Damascus um, in October of 1973 during the Arab-Israeli War of that time. And after that, went regularly to Syria to report on it. So in 1986 and 87, I wanted to write a book about greater Syria, which is Lebanon, little Syria, Jordan and Israel, and so I made a I made a trip throughout the region to to write a kind of travel log about it, and it was just because I was fascinated by it, and particularly by by its very rich history. And when I interviewed people in Aleppo and Damascus and in the villages, um, I could see that there was resentment at the regime, uh, but not any significant armed opposition. There that came. That had already been crushed in 1982 when the Muslim Brothers, uh, the strongest Islamic movement of the time, rose up against the regime in Hama, in the city of Hama, uh, and was crushed by the regime. The, the Ba'ath Party was weakening even when I went there in 1987, and Bashar was slowly diminishing the role of the Ba'ath Party in Syria, which um, 
in, in, in putting other other things in its place, or not not very many other things, but some other things in its place, like um, economic liberalism and uh, private banking and so forth, and diminishing the role of the Ba'ath Party, which is a socialist party, uh, that may have been one of the reasons that the, the country was weakened enough so that the rebellion could take place. So bring us to 2011 and the uprisings against Assad's regime after a I think it was a young teenager who had graffitied uh, an area with, and, and then there was an extreme crackdown, torture, and the civilians rise up, unlike, as you mentioned, in Libya or Tunisia, not to overthrow the regime, but to demand reforms from the regime. Initially, um, youngsters in the town of Dara wrote um, graffiti on the walls of Dara. Dara is a, is a town on the border between Syria and Jordan. It's well known um, in history because that was where Lawrence of Arabia was arrested by the Turks and uh, um, tortured. Uh, and it's it's a it's a sort of typical border town. Makes a lot of mo- its money from smuggling, um, and it's a rural area. And the rural areas of Damascus uh, of Syria have suffered a lot in the last years from drought and from government negligence. And people had legitimate grievances there. But when the children put graffiti... I'm sorry, Charles. Can I ask you about that specifically before I forget? Because some people have said that that's been blown out of proportion. Other people have argued that that hasn't been talked about enough. I had recently interviewed Christian Parenti, who was talking about this loss of livestock and loss of cattle and so forth in the northeastern portions of Syria as a result of climate change. And I think what he mentioned was the longest recorded drought in history. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm sorry to cut you off, but I wanted to make sure to, to get that in. And, and I think this is yes. a good moment. Um, when the, when the um, youngsters of Dara put this graffiti up against the regime, uh, they were inspired by what was going on at exactly that time in Egypt and in Libya and in Tunisia. Uh, but however, these children were arrested and they were tortured. And of course, the parents of of those children in Dara demonstrated against this because. The torturing children was just was just a bit too much for the Syrians. I mean, adults had been tortured, but that didn't didn't get the kind of reaction. But when children were tortured, uh, people were furious, and they were furious throughout the country. It was too much. Bashar al-Assad, the president, instead of dismissing the governor who was responsible, and the governor happened to be his cousin, um, backed him up, and that, of course, inflamed sentiment throughout the country. This is all happening against a backdrop of a five to six year drought in Syria, which was uh, wrecking the agricultural economy. And thousands of peasant farmers were moving into the cities, particularly Damascus and Aleppo, the outskirts of the cities, and building very poor shanty towns, which became fertile grounds for unrest and uh, these were these were areas where the where the revolution really took hold. And by 2012, you mentioned in the book that we have an all-out civil war and the birth of Anusra. Uh, groups of friends of the Syrian people are formed. The Syrian National Council considered the sort of legitimate opposition only for a little while, and then eventually, in October of that year, Hillary Clinton declares the Syrian National Council no longer legitimate. Can you bring us up to 2012 and then 2013 when, uh, as you mentioned, the jihadists start to dominate the opposition? 
Well, I think everyone who, who's been covering Syria recognizes that the violent opposition would always be dominated by the Islamists. Their, and their program was not democracy. It, the program was to get rid of the minority Alawite group that, run, that runs the country and replace it with a majority Sunni group that would run the country, but run the country as a theocracy like Saudi Arabia or Qatar. Saudi Arabia would be their model, so that would mean the end of women's rights, it would mean the end of co-education, it would mean the end of secularism, it would mean no place for Christians um, and non-Sunni Islamic sects like the Alawis, the Druze, the Ismailis, and other quasi-Shiite sects. Um, that, that was an unfortunate turn but I, uh, for the revolution to take, because it made it unpopular with other segments of Syrian society. It alienated other segments of Syrian society. The Armenians felt particularly threatened, and a lot of Armenians in Syria. Uh, the, the outcome was that it became an Islamist uprising or a Salafist uprising against an Alawi-dominated regime rather than a popular movement against a dictatorship. Well, and you mentioned that a lot of the people who were a part of that popular opposition to the dictatorship by 2013 had been, quote, exhausted and tired of the revolution. And I, I don't know if that's been recognized as much by the people who have been cheering on the revolution abroad. Um, so when you're actually in a situation with that level of violence and, and that level of uh, bombardment and destruction and so on, that it can take a heavy toll even on those who have committed themselves to making such changes. Well, many of the young people that I knew who were demonstrating in the streets of Damascus and Aleppo in 2011 and early 2012 are now out of the country because they don't feel that they belong to either side. They reject the regime because it's a dictatorship, but they reject the Islamists because they're even more anti-democratic than the regime. Right. So there's, there's really no place for them in this conflict, and some of them are in prison now. Those, some who were stuck in rebel areas have been killed by the rebels. The uh, Daesh or, or the Islamic State would never tolerate that kind of opinion. And uh, they, they're, out of, they're out of the equation now. It's, it is a battle between a Russian and Iranian-backed government against um, Saudi and Qatari and Turkish-backed Islamists. And why do you think that this nuance has been lost, Charles, especially on the left? I mean, so I remember going to, in 2013, when Obama uh, was talking about uh, initially bombing Syria, when the UK parliament voted against bombing Syria, I remember being on the streets of Chicago with friends, and, and this sort of crazy sectarianism where I was going to some events in Chicago where people were holding up pictures of Assad and then I was going to other events in Chicago where people were holding up pictures of the opposition as if they were some sort of freedom fighters and so on. It was it was very polarized. It was very uh, I think uh, rigidly ideological and this nuance and this complexity of the situation understanding of the history and so on that has not only been lost by the say government officials. I don't know if you'd agree with that statement but also um, from a lot of the activists and a lot of people that I've worked with throughout the years on the left. I mean, have you noticed that? I'm sure you've noticed this, but what, what do you make of that? And what would you sort of recommend for people who are looking to uh, have a more, uh, I think, nuanced and realistic understanding of, of what should have been expected and what we can expect moving forward? Well, many, I think many Americans tend to impose their own conflicts on others. So, 
the United States might see, or uh, many Americans might see um, within their own country, a conflict between left and right, between um, a government now led by someone like Donald Trump and um, trade unionists and uh, civil rights workers and other anti-war factions um, against them. But that's not what's happening in Syria. And it's a mistake to look through an American prism at another country. What's happening in Syria is, is two forces, neither of which is acceptable to most people in Syria, or well, it certainly wouldn't be acceptable to most people in the United States, but in which it's not incumbent on the United States to take sides or to pretend that a Salafist uprising is um, a movement for democracy. I, I remember back in the 1980s, <laughs> Ronald Reagan tried to present the Contras right. in Nicaragua to the American public as the equivalent of the Minutemen in America who fought for independence against the British. Well, it was, it was, that was just nonsense. The Contras were people trying to overthrow a Sandinista regime, which had, which had replaced an oligarchy, which all all Nicaraguans, except for the super-rich, were opposed to. And the United States sent in armed guerrillas from Honduras to wreak havoc on the countryside and make Nicaragua ungovernable. Well, that's basically what they did in Afghanistan under the Soviets. It's basically what they're doing in Syria with these guerrillas. But these guerrillas are not Democrats. They are Salafists. Now, I have a couple more questions. I know we're taking enough of your time already, but... You mentioned in an interview that you think that this could be the the war in Syria could be the worst catastrophe in the Middle East of the last, I think you said, 100 years, worse than Iraq. Um, can you talk about how the war in Iraq uh, maybe opened the doors for what's happening in Syria today and then this sort of human impact, which I think is the most important aspect of this? Talk about the human impact. If you want to mention Iraq, that's fine. A lot of our listeners have heard me and other people talk about that. But all, but primarily, if you can talk about the human devastation and this sort of cultural devastation that has taken place in Syria uh, as a result of this. Well, I was just in Iraq, and to my astonishment, people that I know there uh, who for years were opposed to Saddam Hussein in every way and had been imprisoned by Saddam Hussein and suffered under Saddam Hussein were saying that life in Iraq was better under Saddam Hussein than it was under the Americans. At least under Saddam Hussein, they said, if you, were, if you stayed out of politics and no one fingered you to the regime, <laughs> you could at least walk down the streets and go, your children could go to school and you had electricity. Um, now you can't walk down the street. You're, you're, you've been, your communities have been ghettoized, Sunnis in some areas, Kurds in some areas, Shiites in some areas, where before the neighborhoods had been mixed. Uh, no one trusts anyone. There's no security at all. There's not enough electricity to get through the day. There's not always running water. Uh, and the water isn't drinkable. There, there are no end of problems. And the Iraq War created something called al-Qaeda in Iraq, which al-Qaeda had not, had not existed in Iraq before. And when al-Qaeda in Iraq 
was forced underground by the American surge. Um, it lay dormant until the war in Syria began, and they saw a vacuum in eastern Syria near the Iraqi border that they went over the border to fill and went to Raqqa and took and declared their caliphate. They then came back to Iraq and took Mosul, which is the the largest Sunni city in Iraq, and they're holding Mosul to this day, and they're still holding Raqqa in Syria, and making people's the people who live under them making their lives absolute hell. And that is a, that is a function one of the Iraq War and two of outside interference in Syria. And the human toll, both in Iraq and Syria, as a result of this. Well, in Syria, it's been devastating. I mean, at least a third of the population has fled the country. Maybe half the population is, is homeless. Um, is anywhere between 250 and 400,000 people have died, and that means probably four times as many people wounded. Um, it, it is it's going to take them a generation or more to recover from that. Similarly, in Iraq, from 2003 to 2006, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people were killed, and again, many more wounded. Uh, the entire country um, ethnically cleansed from one region to another, and many, many people made refugees in, 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 from Iraq. Many of them went to Syria and have now had to go back to Iraq because, because things in Syria became so bad. Uh, the, the consequences are just, are just unimaginably bad in both places. And I, well, I, I definitely um, recognize that on a, on a personal level, but I think it's been very difficult for Americans, maybe less so for Europeans because they've had the first sort of first person contact some people with refugees from this area. But I'm also thinking about, as I'm going back to the last question that I asked you, I had just finished reading John Nixon's book, Debriefing the President, The Interrogation of Saddam Hussein. And what I thought was interesting uh, is that Nixon mentions that not, not only did they have a lot of the intelligence wrong, they didn't have people on the ground in Iraq providing substantial uh, intelligence for them, but then also that they missed the fact that uh, actually a lot, a lot of the opposition to Saddam uh, or potential op opposition to Saddam was coming from these Sunni areas as opposed to the Shia areas. I was wondering what you made of, of that kind of a, a assessment and then what... You know, there's people who have called some of the resistance in these Sunni areas in Iraq, Al-Qaeda, or this Daesh, uh, ISIL, ISIS. How much of that resistance do you think are people just native, indigenous to the area, have nowhere else to go, no one else to turn to? And how much of that opposition do you think is purely ideological? You know, people who well, say gravitated. Under, under Saddam, Saddam was, was a a monster to Sunnis, Shiites, and Kurds. I mean, the, um, the population lived in, in fear. And I, I remember going to Iraq under Saddam, and it was it was a terrifying place to be. There's no no question about it. Uh, people people were watched all all the time. Uh, their neighbors reported on one another. Uh, no one knew whom to trust. The, the forms of torture were unimaginably awful. Um, there's no question that. That Saddam, that the people of Iraq would have been better off without him. What, what was, what was tragic for the Iraqis is that when he was gone, they ended up with something that was actually worse. That 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 was quite an achievement. And in in Syria, 
as bad as the regime is, it's not as bad as, as Daesh or ISIS. And how did the how did these intelligence services get this so wrong, Charles? In other words, how can I read books from, say, yourself, people like Robert Fisk, people like Patrick Coburn? How can I have? I just received Andrew Basevich's book, America's War for the Greater Middle East. I'm finishing Seymour Hersh's book, The Killing of Osama bin Laden. How can there be so much misinformation and disinformation and simply false information in these intelligence services and among governmental inf- uh, officials and officialdom, as opposed to say the the more nuanced, I would even say balanced, even though I hate using that term because it's thrown around so much. But these books that I'm reading provide such a more rich history, more factual information, uh, more nuance, more criticism, and mostly, uh, more often than not, very correct in your analysis you and predictions and the, so on. You have to remember that in the case of the Bush administration, the Bush administration told the intelligence services what information it wanted, right. and it discarded right. Those intelligence analyses, which which said what Bush didn't want to hear, right. for example, in weapons of mass destruction, the, the people who told them that Saddam had destroyed his weapons of mass destruction, which turned out to be right, were, they were they were brushed aside. Uh, Seymour Hersh has written very well about the politicization of American intelligence, and I think we've seen a lot of it in this recent election and the post-election fallout in the United States. The intelligence services have become providers of information which supports the views of the administration in power. And that's um, that's not what an intelligence service... Intelligence just means information. They should be providing and analyzing information so that the policy can be made, not wait for the policy to tell them what the information should be. But that, that seems to be what's happening. And Nixon makes the same point throughout his book. Well, so if we could... The last question I would have for you, maybe two questions... Where do we go from here? Where is Syria today? What is your suggestion in terms of policy uh, for, say, the United States? Most of our listeners will be in the United States, but we also have an international audience. What do you think specifically the United States and Europe could do to stop the violence? What could the international community do to stop the violence and take care of those at the very least, in my thinking, which is a complete fucking travesty? Uh, what has happened uh, to the victims of these wars and the fact that people in the United States, including the U.S. government, uh, have provided virtually no help uh, or brought in refugees and so on. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that to end the conversation? It seems to be agreed by every—I've just been in Syria as well as in Iraq. It seems that everyone agrees that the the regime is winning with Russian and Iranian support— uh, and if the war is to end, that has to be accepted. Once once the regime regains control of the entire country, the, the best thing that outsiders can do is to make sure that the regime does not take reprisals, that there are safeguards in place to observe regime behavior, and that um, assistance goes to through the United Nations to people who need to rebuild their houses and rebuild their lives, and also to rebuild the economic infrastructure of the country, um, which has been badly devastated in this war. I mean, Syria, for example, used to export pharmaceuticals throughout the region, but most of those pharmaceutical plants have been destroyed in the fighting. Now, that, that, that kind of thing should be 
reinstated to help Syria get back on its feet, and that would mean cooperating with the Russians and the Iranians and the rest of the international community to ensure that the war doesn't begin again and also that the regime does reform itself and that someday that there will be a transition so that the, the people of Syria can choose their government, not, not by force of arms, but in a real election. And where does your work take you from here, Charles? At the moment, I'm writing an, an I'm writing two articles: one for uh, the New York Review of Books about Syria, and one for Harper's Magazine about Iraq. And when I finish those, I'm going to have to polish off a book that I'm writing about World War II. Excellent, excellent. And what books? This is another question I'd be interested to ask you: What books would you recommend people, average American? Graduated college, maybe a little bit of college, or maybe graduated high school, a little bit of college, just graduated college. Their uh, specialty isn't the Middle East or the history of U.S. foreign policy. What books would you recommend for people to better understand uh, U.S. foreign policy in the region? First, it would, would not be a book. It would be a website called Syria Comment, run by Josh Landis um, in Oklahoma, uh, who's a very good Syria specialist. And he has got it right more than anybody that I know uh, at every stage of this Syria conflict. He's worth reading, and I don't think he's written a book, but the website's very good. In terms of books on the region, I would recommend David Hurst's The Gun and the Olive Branch, which is about the Palestine conflict. Um, I would recommend um, all of Patrick Coburn's books on Iraq. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I can't think of anything else. Okay. Well, hey, Charles. Others, but I, none, none of them spring to mind. Well, I, I mean, thanks for your time. I, I really appreciate it. I know I've been trying to get in contact with you, and I've been bothering you via email. So, and I oh, know no, I, no problem. No problem. Obviously, you're a very busy person. So, thanks for your work, and thanks for providing. I think such a useful. Uh, book here for people who are better, better trying to understand the situation and for people who are hoping to make changes politically. It's really nice to talk to you, and thanks for calling. All right, folks. That was my interview with journalist and author Charles Glass about his book, Syria Burning, ISIS, and the Death of the Arab Spring. Check it out. It'll be up in uh, podcast format here pretty soon. You're listening to the Progressive Radio Network. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. Come back next week. We'll be talking with activist and organizer Olga Batista, where you can find us here, Meditations and Molotovs, every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time.